Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's number one provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any technological listening device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you call it. And here's a terrific deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get the book How to Live or A Life of Montaigne in One Question and 20 Attempts at an Answer by Sarah Bakewell. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography this past year. Or else go get Earth, A Visitor's Guide to the Human Race by Jon Stewart, host of The Daily Show. Or how about Cheever, A Life by Blake Bailey, also a winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge to download your free audiobook. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Show. This is the Other People Podcast. This is the program. We're here together. It's just the two of us. Or is it three of us? Today's guest, I'm very excited about it. It's Alan Heathcock. He's the author of a story collection called Volt, which is available now from the Gray Wolf Press. Uh, it's a collection that's gotten an unusual amount of critical acclaim. Publishers Weekly loved it. They called it a best book of 2011, uh, as did Shelf Awareness and Book Page and the Chicago Tribune and GQ Magazine. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, the point is that this is some powerful fi uh, short fiction by a very gifted writer who lives in Idaho. So we're going to be talking at length in just a moment, Alan and I. Uh, before I get there, 
what else is going on? Uh, it is award season here in Los Angeles in Hollywood. They are handing out awards for achievements in cinema, uh, left and right. This is happening. And, uh, you know, not a ton to say here, but, uh, I do want to point out that my favorite moment of any award show, uh, you know, I'm not a guy who likes to watch it for the fashion or anything like that. Uh, or, and I don't even really care who wins. Uh, the moment that I love is the moment when the nominees are being read aloud and the camera goes to each person one by one. Uh, I love that moment. I also love when the winner is read and you see the reaction shots. Um, but in particular, I like when the nominees are read. I like that, uh, that moment and watching how people respond to maximum recognition and supposed, you know, supposed ego gratification where, uh, you know, you have like a billion people in the world watching you get recognized for doing something well. And, uh, you know, I like to see how people respond when that kind of attention is placed upon them. Uh, you know, and so, uh, it just comes down to like, do they remain stoic or do they give a toothless grin, uh, or do they completely lose it? You know, do they break, do they give a big smile and like some sort of goofy laugh and some eye contact with the lens, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what I tend to be focused on when forced to watch, uh, an award show. And, uh, I've always sort of believed, you know, or imagined of myself that if I were ever in that situation, I would be able to maintain a neutral facial expression. And, uh, you know, that would be the goal to just be completely stoic, completely stone faced with like a, you know, like a thousand yard stare, just unaffected. Uh, that's what I like to think. So, uh, what else is going on? Uh, this morning I got up at five. Uh, that's been sort of the trend lately. I've been getting up very, very early and consuming a lot of caffeine very, very early which, uh, you know, more or less has been the trend throughout my entire adult life. Uh, but lately I've sort of up, up my game a little bit. I get up, uh, you know, at the crack of dawn or even before, and uh, I make a, a double espresso first thing. And then I also make a, a full pot of tea and, and that's how I kick things off. Uh, and I might eat maybe like a, a very light breakfast, you know, sort of like a prison breakfast where I just have like a piece of bread. Um, mostly because I don't like to work on a full stomach. So I'm standing there in my kitchen, if you can imagine me, and it's 5 a.m., and I'm drinking this double espresso, and uh, I have the water boiling, and I'm making the tea, and then once that's done, I'll typically eat some chocolate, which also contains caffeine, uh, because I love chocolate, and it's part of my uh, ritual. I feel like chocolate is good for me. I feel like it, it, it adds something to, uh, to my day. So I, I eat that, and then I take my pot of tea, and I go into my office and I begin and, uh, you know, I've been trying to uh, work on my book first thing. That's been the, uh, the pattern lately chipping away. Uh, it's been sort of, you know, extremely slow going as it always tends to be just kind of like, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And, uh, you know, I don't like to talk about the details, uh, as a matter of superstition, but I can say that lately I've been working on a scene involving a Python, a bong hit and a massive panic attack. And, uh, that's as much as I can tell you. So, uh, I did that. I wrote, and then when that was done, uh, I went to the gym, which is something else I try to do. Uh, I do try to stay, uh, physically fit or as close to it as possible. And, uh, I think I've talked about this before on the program, uh, my need, uh, for like some kind of motion and uh, also my susceptibility to health trends. So, uh, lately I've been trying to lift weights like two or three days a week because I read somewhere that men in their thirties, uh, you know, begin to shrivel at this age. And you need to like do resistance training in order to counter that. 
So I've been trying to do that, uh, which is an odd thing to do. And I will, you know, I can totally, uh, admit that, uh, that, you know, lifting weights is just, you know, strange, uh, and gyms in general are strange places, uh, where you have all these people kind of looking at themselves in the mirror and lifting heavy objects simultaneously. And, uh, at the gym that I go to, uh, you know, it's even weirder because everyone tends to be unusually good looking, you know, like the overwhelming majority of people are, are, are like unusually, uh, good looking because it's Hollywood and you have a bunch of actors and models and, uh, models slash actors and dancers slash models and so on working out, uh, and maintaining their fitness. And so, uh, and I should also mention as sort of a side note that one of the weirdest things I ever saw at my gym. And this happened very early. Like it was like five 30 in the morning, which made it even stranger. Uh, but I'm there and I'm half asleep and I see Jeff Goldblum in the gym and he's wearing blue jeans in the gym, like just walking around. And, uh, you know, for me, blue jeans in any kind of exercise scenario tends to freak me out. Uh, I just find it odd. Uh, but I, but I will say in Jeff Goldblum's defense that I didn't see him actually working out, uh, in his jeans. He was just walking around and he was extremely tall and skinny. So anyway, uh, the point is that when I'm at the gym, I tend to feel a little self-conscious, uh, but I do feel committed to doing it because, uh, I'm freaked out by how much of my life is spent sitting in a chair. Uh, I'm worried about how inert my, my, you know, day-to-day existence tends to be. And I worry that it's unhealthy. Uh, and I'm always thinking back to the olden days, uh, you know, back when men, uh, went outside and, and hunted and worked the land. And now we're all just kind of hunched over in front of screens and we're not lifting anything. So, uh, yeah, so I'm at the gym and I find it interesting, uh, you know, mildly interesting, I guess, from a people watching perspective, uh, just the whole dynamic of it, you know, all of us there, all of us looking at each other, look at, look at ourselves in the mirror. You know what I'm saying? Everyone's looking at everyone else in the mirror. And, uh, you know, some people I guess are looking at me and then I'm looking at them and I'm trying to maintain, uh, a neutral facial expression. I'm trying to maintain some kind of poker face, uh, you know, just, you know, which I think everybody sort of does. And, uh, this then brings me to a particular specific incident today where there is this girl at my gym who is always at the gym every time I go to the gym. And she's a great, uh, fascination to me. And to be frank with you, she's sort of messes with my head. Uh, I'm I'm concerned about her because anytime I go there, doesn't matter when or what day she is there. And she's almost always on the treadmill running at a pretty good speed. And, uh, you know, obviously she's extremely fit, uh, and she's very tan, but in a way that looks unhealthy, you know, this is a girl who has, uh, arms kind of like Madonna and, uh, you know, zero body fat. And it's, it's just, uh, it's too much. It's uh it's over exercise and you, and you definitely get the sense that there's something compulsive about it and that this is what she does with her life every single day. She just goes to the gym all day. So, uh, then today, what was interesting was that this girl, for the first time uh, since I've been seeing her at the gym, she stopped running on the treadmill at one point, and she came over to this bench uh, not too far away from me, and she sat down, and she started eating. <laughs> uh, she ate a banana in the gym, sitting on this bench, and I'm watching her. I'm like lifting, you know, I'm on this like weight machine, and uh, I'm watching this girl in the mirror And I'm happy, uh, on a couple of fronts. Like, first of all, I'm excited that she stopped running because that worries me. 
and then also I was happy that, to see her eating, you know, and to see her eating in public. Uh, but the problem was that she was eating a banana. <laughs> and uh, as far as I'm concerned, no one looks entirely good eating a banana in public. And uh, personally, uh, I'm not even sure if I've ever, ever eaten a banana in public myself. And, and if I did, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, I, you know, I probably broke it in half, you know, and ate it in small pieces uh, rather than eat it in the traditional way, uh, which to me just looks too much like fellatio. Uh, I realize that's sort of sophomoric. But that's my sense of humor. Uh, it's a little juvenile. And so uh, I'm sitting there, uh, you know, at this weight machine, and I've got headphones in my ears, and I'm sort of zoning out, and I'm watching this girl eat this banana, and I swear to you, I'm not being a pervert. You know, there was, n- there was no uh, perverse intentions. Uh, I'm just I'm more just, like, happy to see her take a seat and have something to eat. But uh, then she catches me watching her in the mirror, and we make eye contact just as she's taking... Uh, a big bite of this banana and it was very awkward and like I looked away I sort of flinched and then she looked away and uh, I went back to look at her it was just it was very very awkward and uh, I could not maintain facial control Uh, I'm pretty sure I smiled a little bit uh, sheepishly which probably seemed uh, sort of uh, creepy or weird or something and the girl got up like moments later and returned to the treadmill and started running and I felt like a grave sense of disappointment, you know, like I had choked, uh, like I'd screwed something up and upset some sort of, uh, like delicate cosmic balance all because I couldn't maintain a neutral facial expression while watching a girl eat a banana at the gym. It was a great tragedy. Um, so how is everything? Everything's good. You're having a good run. Like, uh, <clears throat> I saw that you made, uh, you made several best of lists. You know, Volt has, has done well. Volt's, uh, Volt's done really well and it's been very exciting. And, uh, so now I'm, you know, at the same time working on the next book and, and I'm thinking, boy, this next one better be damn good. <laughs> yeah. Right. You gotta, uh, now you got to follow it up. It's like, oh shit. <laughs> I mean, it's good pressure. I mean, that's what. That's what you work for uh, to help people pay attention a little bit, and and they are. So it doesn't mess with my head too much, uh, but I'm I'm trying to enjoy it as much as I can. So it's it's been fun, and uh, three kids and a wife, and they they're all very excited about it. So it's nice. It comes out, you know, right around the holidays too. So it feels festive. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And make it feel festive. Sure, sure. Now, uh, three kids. So you have three kids, and you're and you're finding time to write, and you're teaching. Like, how's the how does that balancing act work? Well, that, that's probably the great challenge right now. Uh, I mean, for for a long time, I had the luxury of no one really paying any attention to me at all, <laughs> which lend uh, a great deal of time. So. Uh, all my kids are in school, and so I have, uh, you know, get them off to school every day, and then I have the whole day to myself. And I usually only teach uh, at, at most three classes a semester, which was this semester, uh, but anywhere from one to three classes. And they usually meet in the evenings. Most fiction workshops uh, do it that way. So I have the bulk of my day to write uh, and to do whatever other things I have, but. Um, that's been the big shift in the past, um, you know, six or so months as the book has come out and gotten more attention is trying to figure out how to fit everything in, uh, in a way where it stays in balance. Uh, 
Well, you mean, you mean and, with regard to like the uh, the the work you're doing to kind of pub- you know publicize the book or whatever, like the marketing. Stuff? Yeah, I did, I did. You know, I've done an awful lot of traveling, and more so than I thought. I mean, the original plan was, uh, you know, the book came out in March, and the original plan was probably I'd be done with my little tour about the first week in April. So, you know, a few weeks going to do some some events here and there. Uh, and really, I didn't stop traveling until uh, you know the week before Thanksgiving. Wow! Uh, and so it was a lot more uh, of that kind of stuff. Well, then, no, and, what, what uh, happened? I mean, what happened precisely? That just you just got a lot of invitations to do stuff, or your publisher was responding to sales and decided to send you out more? Or? Uh, all of the above. I mean, it's kind of uh, as the book kind of picked up steam. And people started hearing about it. I got invited to more things. And uh, as I went out and uh, did my thing and met people, I think the publisher recognized that uh, it was going well. And they sought out a few more opportunities. And uh, so just things kept coming in. It was never, you know, like back in July, we knew that we would be booked through November or something like that. It was always, I had been saying for months, well, I just get through this next couple of weeks, and then I'll be back to to normal, and then more things would pop up and pop up, and uh, just kind of, you know, it took me a long time to get this book done. And uh, the philosophy I've gone with is that, you know, any opportunities that come up, I'm just going to go ahead and do them and um, try to take them in the right spirit. I've had fun. I mean, I, again, you know, the life of a writer is a pretty lonesome one. Uh, you sit by yourself all day, even when I have a wife and kids all day long. I sit by myself. So there's the social part of me has really enjoyed all of the travel and meeting people. And I'm like, gosh, I I forgot how starved I was for that kind of human interaction. Yeah, yeah. No, I I used to always say, like people would always say, uh, you know, who weren't necessarily, you know, working uh, writers, they would say, you know, is it lonely? And I would... My line was always like, yeah, it's lonely generally, and it's especially lonely when it's not going well. You know, but when your characters are are talking to you, or you know, the story's coming more easily, then it's less lonely. You know. Yeah, I mean, and at the same time, you know, I'm I'm probably, uh, you know, uh, like most writers, I'm fundamentally kind of an introverted person, and so I'm probably most comfortable when I'm at my desk and doing my work. Uh, it's easiest for me, uh, and so uh, I don't know if uh, I don't know if I ever felt lonesome, so to speak, like in any given day, like oh, I really need to be around people, the human interaction. It was more that uh, I didn't realize how much I missed people, right. and and how mu- how much given being around the right kind of people, um, that it's it's really quite nice, you know. And of course, I'm traveling to events where people like my book and they are smart people who like books and so it's 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 not like i'm just traveling in general yeah it would, uh, it would sort of suck, it would suck to travel and, and uh be received by a group of people who hate your book and you know, like yeah. can't, can't stand uh, reading these are my people so right. uh in you know in general uh pe- people can be bothersome but <laughs> if they're your people then it's a little bit different so and, and so, did you ever have trouble saying yes to invites? Because I mean, you know, I think you're, like, I think it's admirable to to do it like you like you said, and just take it in the right spirit, and try to find 
ways to enjoy that part of it. Cause some writers, you know, they can't stand doing, uh, that side of it, but they sort of concede themselves to it because they don't know how else to get, uh, their book in front of people. Um, but you know, do you ever find yourself like, Oh God, I got to go do another one. Or did you, you know, do you, do you see it differently? Well, I try to see it differently. I mean, I, that's kind of whatever, a first world problem. I mean, kind of like, Oh no, I have, people want to have me come talk about my book and have my book celebrated. Right. Boo-hoo. I mean, I, uh, again, I, I kind of grew up in kind of a working class area and, all the people I grew up with, they have actual jobs. I mean, they are police officers and firefighters and pipe fitters. They're out doing jobs. I'm always aware of that part of it. So, like, who am I to whine and complain about, oh, I have to fly to an event where they're going to celebrate me and my book? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, at the same time, uh, I've I've learned that me saying just what I just said gets me in trouble with other writers because I think you're told you're not supposed to like that or you're not supposed to indulge it or or some weird thing uh, that that goes on uh, but no I just you know if, if people want to have me my my regrets I, I only have a couple of regrets were that I said no to a couple things that didn't quite fit in the schedule just right but you know looking back I'm like man I should have done those a uh, couple things that I said no to. I didn't feel a sense of relief. I'm like, you know what? I missed, I missed an opportunity. Um, what were they? Well, um, one of them was to, to drive up north in, in Idaho and give a reading, and one of them was to uh, fly to St. Louis and to give a reading uh, with Donald Ray Pollock at a place called the Noir Bar, and that's the one I really regret. I really admire Donald Ray Pollock's work, and it just was one of those things where, uh, at the time I was traveling, I was trying to like, if I went to the Midwest, I would do five or six things while I was there, and so it was one where I'd have to just fly there and back just for that one event, and I was already in the middle of the summer, and I'm like, wow, that's not working right with the schedule. I would have had to push a couple other things around. And so I'm like, you know, maybe some other time. But I'm like, you know, I should have done that. Right, right. So, you know, because now it's the year end, and I'm like, you know, I missed my opportunity to not only meet Donald Ray Pollock, who I greatly admire, but also to read with him um, at an event. And so, uh, yeah, that would have that would have been cool. So yeah, I no, regret that. No, and I, I you know, I, I get it. And I think, like, it's sometimes, you know, if somebody's willing to invite you to do something like that as an author uh, – you know, it seems almost foolish to turn down uh, opportunities. I don't think, you know, I think when, uh, think back to when my book was out, like I, I don't necessarily love doing readings, but I, at the same time, I, I don't think I've ever turned down uh, or I've rarely turned down uh, an invitation to read just because A, you don't know if there's going to be another one. And then B, if you're not out there doing these things, uh, you know, on behalf of the book, uh, who else would be? Do you know what I'm saying? Like you almost have an obligation to your book to, to go out and do it regardless of how you feel about it, it seems like. Well, that's right. I mean, listen, if if I say no, then they're not going to beg me. I mean, they're going to say, oh, well, that's too bad, and they're going to go down the list whoever the next person is, and someone else will get the opportunity. And uh, so, you know, I understand that part of it too. I mean, there, there's a big part of me uh, – that thinks in some pure way, I'm like, 
but at the same time, I don't want to be, you know, a used car salesman for my book. Um, it's just, you know, I know that I spent a lot of time working on this book to get the art side right. You know, I spent over a dozen years working on the book so that it would be exactly the book that I wanted. And I feel that I that I had that. And so now there's like this second obligation, which is, you know what? I put all that work into the book. I actually, I want to see the book uh, find the readership, you know, for, for the people who would like the book and who it, it might somehow work on, uh, who the interaction with the book might somehow enable what literature is supposed to do for people. Um, then there's a part of it is that I have to get out and kind of do my part to make sure that the, 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 the word is out about the book so that those people can find it. Uh, I want the book to succeed. I don't want the book to fail. Right. So. Well, I mean, so, okay. So what's the dividing line though? Cause I can totally relate. Like you want whatever you're, you know, whatever you're doing creatively to find its audience, you know, and you want it, you, you've worked so hard on it and you've spent years on it and then you want to, um, you know, you, you want to see it find its readership. But when you say you don't want to be a used car salesman on its behalf, like, do you have any definition for that? Because like, I mean, I, I totally get it, but it's like, what's the dividing line? You know, you're out, yeah, you're, so, doing, you're doing interviews, you're trying to find communities of readers to interact with and whatnot. But like, wh what is it that you wouldn't do? Or, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, where's the, where's the, yeah. the marker? Well, I think when I started off back in March, so the book came out and I'm like, I want the whole world to read my book. Like anybody who will buy my book, I want them to buy the book. And, and that dividing line uh, came very clear that I don't want everybody to read the book um, and that I'm not interested in everybody reading the book. I mean, really, my book is uh, pretty intense, and it deals with um, certain things that are my preoccupations that are not other people's preoccupations. And uh, so, for, for example, I, I did a couple book clubs. You know, book clubs are a big part of the world of book selling these days. And so coming out, I'm like, well, I should try to see if I can get and do some book clubs, even locally here in Boise. And so I did a few, and they just didn't, they just didn't go well. The book is not a good book club book. It, it made people uncomfortable. Like, I, you know, I would go and I would talk to the group, and the first thing I would find myself doing is kind of, apologizing for how intense the book is. <laughs> Everybody's crying. No, they would they would make awkward conversation around. No one would actually talk about the content of the book. And, and then, you know, like uh the same thing would happen every time. Like every, we'd make kind of polite, awkward conversation around the book. Uh or someone would have a couple awkward questions about the content of the book, I think feeling me out to make sure that I'm not a psycho myself. <laughs> and then we go, then we go eat chocolates and sip wine. And a couple ladies would come sneak up to me and say, you know how this one tragic thing did happen to me. And then I would talk to them individually. Um, and it's those ladies who came to me afterwards. Those are the people I'm looking for. I just want the book in the hands of those people. And so that's what I mean. I don't want to be a used car salesman. I don't want to be like, hey, you should buy my book. Everybody buy my book. Um, because I think that's not really what I want. You know, if I could magically just have the book find its way into the hands of the people 
uh, who it will work for and who it's meant for, then that's ideal. Um, and uh, so that's been the trick that I, I think early on I was trying to find a way to uh, normalize the book in ways that it would not seem as kind of intense and that I would kind of step around <laughs> the truth of the issue that I'm dealing with in the book, and it just got me in trouble. Right, right. Just, uh, be, just be straight about it and just, like you know, like you say, it's meant for who it's meant for, and everybody else could, would probably prefer to read something else. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's it, it starts off as an insecurity. It's like, you know, there there aren't enough creeps out in the world like me who will, <laughs> who will like the book. But what I found is that, you know, that there's a great number of people who the book is working for in a sincere way. And, uh, you know, people of all walks of life, men and women alike. And so I, I kind of, one of the good things about traveling is that I would find, you know, people who I would not have pegged uh, to have enjoyed the book because of some first impression I might have of them would then come and say, oh, I really like this, like this. And I'm like, you know what, I can't I can't say what the demographic is for my book other than there are individuals it works for. But my job is just to say what it is, straight up what it is, and then let the book find those people. Yeah, you know, you, you, uh, you say that, and I remember uh... – like in my own experience, like because I, I totally relate to that. You think you think in your head you can kind of imagine your ideal reader, or you can imagine who the book is going to work for. And then I recall being uh, of all places at my grandmother's funeral, and uh, I'm down in Louisiana at my grandmother's funeral at the wake, and one of her longtime neighbors, who's 88 years old and about like you know four feet 11 inches tall, she's this tiny woman just comes up to me. I didn't even, I, I barely, re, you know, remembered her to be honest. And she comes up to me and, and uh, says hello and tells me how much she liked my book. And I was like, right. I had no, I mean, an 88 year old woman was just never in my mind when I was writing it. So you just, you can't predict it. No, that's right. You can never predict oh, where it's going to come from. And, uh, I don't know. I, that, I think that's kind of cool. I mean, that's kind of in, in a way has, uh, you know, sitting by yourself all day, and with the book coming out, I was thinking about kind of people as demographics. And I think that's a terrible thing when you start kind of thinking of the world as demographics. Right. And it, it brought me on the world. And I'm like, well, no. Uh, that, you know, I, so I went to like the Martha's Vineyard Book Festival. It's very kind of uh, more fancy people of means sort of crowd. And I think my demographic in my mind was that. These are kind of more rural, working class stories, and people who've kind of had a hard time in their life might be able to gravitate to an understanding of it. But then, you know, I'm I'm talking to this very well dressed uh, lady who who looks like she is the classic book club type who would not touch my book with a ten foot pole. And she does the same thing. She's like, you know what? I read this one story, and that got me thinking about this thing that happened to me. And she and I had the greatest conversation uh, uh, because the book worked on her. I don't know. I think that that's been uh, a very cool thing. I think it's a cool thing to recognize about the world that uh, we're not separated into these whatever classes and races and places and different things, but that there's some human element that kind of cuts through all of that. Um, that, that is maybe the demographic you're looking for. So, well, and when you talk about, uh, you know, you talk about 
uh, who the book works for and the things that you're preoccupied with that find their way into your fiction? Like, do you have uh, a clear sense of what those preoccupations are? Like, can you, can you verbalize that? I can now because I've been interviewed so many times. <laughs> right? They tell you, you you find out uh, what you you find out what your book is about by talking about it, right? Yeah, no, I had to come up with a language to figure out how to how to explain it to people. And you know, that was the biggest thing too of coming out of the gate of starting to get interviews and and uh you know, the example I give is like, you know, if if someone said, What's your favorite color? Right, I might say, Well, you know, red is my favorite color, but then the interviews always ask, well, why, why is red your favorite color? And I'm like, well, damn, I don't, I don't know. Why is red my favorite color? <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, you have to kind of track it back. Well, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. Their uniforms are red or uh, I read that book on Feng Shui and red's a power color. I'm like, I don't know. You start con- creating an understanding of, of things, but so I did do that with my book. And so it, not that it was too difficult to, to figure out because I keep kind of hitting the same things again and again, but I think, so I've, I have said my tagline now is uh, that my preoccupations uh, are kind of about the invasive nature of violence in our life, and I'll use the term violence to be literal physical violence, but other kind of violence, psychic, emotional violence, and because of that, uh, whatever, the tenuous nature of peace, of how... Uh, how difficult it is to keep a sense of peace in our lives when we live in a world that kind of um, is affected by the invasive nature of these violences um, and, and, and how they come in. The, the violence is more invasive and the, the peace is uh, more precious. Uh, but I think that's kind of my preoccupation that goes all the way back from you know when I was a kid, uh, just understanding of the, the the struggle to keep a sense of well-being, of peace in your life. It's like a daily struggle well, to yeah. keep that. Well, where and talking about uh, your childhood, like you're from Chicago. I'm from Hazelcrest, which is in the southland area of Chicago. Um, so it's kind of uh, a working-class town. It's kind of there's in South Chicago. There's kind of a, a an industrial belt that goes down south in Joliet, Illinois, and then to the east, Gary, Indiana, and Hazelcrest is right in that kind of stretch down south. Okay, yeah, I'm from. So, I, I grew up part of my childhood in Indianapolis, so I know that neck of the woods pretty well. Oh yeah, yeah. So were you like in your childhood? Were you were you exposed to violence? I mean, if you have this preoccupation uh, with it in your work, it's just uh, you know, is is this just a, a sense of it in a broader? Uh, way, you know, with respect to the media and with respect to war and just, you know, the kind of like the broader human issue of violence, or is this stuff that you can look back in your life and say, wow, you know, I was exposed to a lot of violence or there was a particular episode that I think triggered it or, or, you know, kind of got me thinking along these lines and, and is the reason why I'm working in this vein in my fiction. Well, it's, it's going to be both. I think, uh, you know, there are, there are specific instances that I I recall, you know, my early, some of my earliest memories have to do with, uh, you know, witnessing fights and things. I remember being very small. I can't remember how young, but uh, I was in a place called Angelo's Pizzeria. And I went into the bar area to put some, look at the jukebox, they had the old-fashioned jukebox with all the rainbow colors, and a, just a big nasty brawl 
broke out right in front of me, and I kind of got trapped in there. And I remember that, just being a little kid, like eye level with it, uh, as these guys are on the floor just wailing on each other. And so that's an event. But but moreover, just, you know, when you grow up kind of uh, in, in a place that uh, is kind of tough, um, people are, are always testing each other. I mean, it seemed like, I didn't realize it when I was there. I think only once I left did I realize that I had this stuff vibrating in me. But it's 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 constantly a feeling like I have to keep my eyes open and my defenses up in a way um, just to make sure that people are being straight with me and no one's going to screw with me. Um, you know, every ride on the bus, every day at school, there was always kind of the potential of something. Now, that's not to say that I had an unhappy childhood at all. I I loved where I grew up. I'm very proud of where I grew up. But that's uh, one of the byproducts is this is this sense of, of of violence and how it kind of seeps into who you are. And do you think that do you uh, think that it was specific or or like you know at, at a heightened level in the place where you grew up compared to other places, or do you feel it in Boise now as well? Do you know what I'm saying? Is it is it is it just the way human beings are? Period, or do you think it was different? Um, you know, in South Chicago, or I, I think it's uh, I think it's everywhere. I think you'll find certain places in Boise, Idaho. There are certain neighborhoods uh, where it's it's you know a, a little little more rough and tumble, and people are struggling to get by. And uh, I think when you're around a place like that, there's there is some sort of premium put on um, on toughness um, and sticking things out. Um, and I think that's everywhere. Um, Increasingly you know, so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think it's universal. I think it's a part of the human dynamic. Uh, you know, I think we have to test ourselves in certain ways or see what things are made of. Certainly, I think, you know, I'm talking in sociological terms now, which I'm not as comfortable with and talking in generalities, but, you know, I think that you know people get frustrated in in certain areas and uh, it's like they they can't get rid of that frustration there's nothing they can do about it you know when you don't have money or means you don't have a power over your own environment um you know you can't go get a different job or you can't influence your future in a certain way you don't have access to certain things you can't take a vacation uh for example and so i think in areas like that it's like what do i have power over and i'm like well i'm bigger than that kid i'm gonna go beat the crap out of him right uh, or it's, it spills out in, in these kind of ways and uh so i think that's a part of humanity again i'm i'm not as comfortable talking in sociological terms um but i think that's probably an accurate statement well, yeah, and you know, and just like just recalling that fight from your childhood, you know, it sparked something in my own head where I remember being in probably sixth or seventh grade. This was in Indianapolis, and I remember seeing a fight, and it was it was probably the first real fist fight I'd ever seen up close. And uh, the shock of that hasn't left me. And I always talk about how bad a memory I have on the show, and like that's one of the memories that does stick with me in like pretty pretty uh, specific sensory detail, just because. Uh, it was so at odds with like the fights that you see on TV and in the movies. You know, it was like, uh, you know, it was really violent, and it was uh, the, the, the sound of the punches landing and all that. I remember freaked me out. You know, well, 
very that's absolutely true. And I I've always had a and in in my book I bring up Roy Rogers all the time. I remember watching old episodes of Roy Rogers. It's not like I'm 80 years old, but you know they're reruns. <laughs> reruns on TV growing up, but every episode. Roy Rogers would get into like this fight where they'd be flying over tables and and, and everything, and no one ever got bloody. And uh, then they go sing a song and 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 stuff like that. And that's kind of whatever the the how it's normalized on TV. But you're exactly right. It's like you know uh, how many fist fights I saw that within the place I grew up in are inconsequential. People are like, well, what's the big deal about that? That's just a fist fight. But it's like, you know, seeing people hit in the face and seeing blood come from their nose and their mouth, um, it's kind of a profound thing. Uh, it's a startling thing, and it's a scary thing. I yeah. mean, we get we, it becomes like a cliche to us. I, you know, I was talking to my brother. My, my brother is three years older than I am. And my, my brother is saying, yeah, I've been laughing about people are always asking you about violence. It's like, what do you know about violence? He still lives back in that area, too. He's he's still there. And uh, so I'm like, well, uh, I remember when you called that girl Dogface, and she picked up, you know, what the, comp- the old compass for math class that had the sharp point and the pencil, and you make circles with it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, she came after you, and she was jabbing at that thing. She was trying to kill you. And then there was that other time when you threw a snowball at Scott Izzell, and the Izzell family was this. A uh, big time gangbanger family, and he, my brother, had a had a hard time controlling his his mouth, and so Scotty Zell said something, or my brother said something back. Scotty Zell went and got his brothers, and all of these guys come out of this house, run down the street. They grab my brother, they hold his face in a snowbank. This is the middle of winter in Chicago, you know, and they just these these are blown men, you know. My my brother is probably. 13 years old at this time, and they hold his face, you know, down in the gutter of the snowbank, and they pick up these huge chunks of ice, and for like, you know, minutes, they just slam these big chunks of ice over his head, and, you know, I'm trying to scramble to get to him, and I'm like, you know, this is the same guy who's had this stuff happen to him and has seen even worse around him. He's like, you know, what do you, why are they asking you about violence? What do you know about violence, right? <laughs> That's the, that. I'm like, don't you, don't you remember? Right. I was, uh, was going to say, I'd be writing about violence too if I saw that, you know. Right, right. But that's how that's how it happens. It's like you know, um, but it gets normalized. And I know in our neighborhood, you'd be like, well, we're not as bad as it is over by the Robert Taylor homes. They're the real violence. They're the killing each other. It's like you, you always have to have some quantifying structure in there. Well, we can't talk about violence because we're just stabbing and punching each other. We're not actually shooting each other in the head, so that's not real violence. <laughs> that's kind of, it's only once I left there, I kind of like, gosh, what's wrong with me, right? You know, I would, I would go to, I remember if the first week I moved to Boise, Idaho, I've been here 11 years now, but the very first week I went to a cocktail party kind of in the nicer area, Boise, really nice people. And, um, you know, I started telling these stories that I've always told is like funny stories, like, oh, this funny thing happened. Like this guy on my basketball team that I knew, 
uh, would jump out of the bushes, hit me in the face, and mug me. And and he would pretend like he didn't know me. And I'd be like, hey, hey, hey. And, you know, he would just pretend like uh, I was someone else. And he, I'd give him my money, and he'd run away. And so, you know, I'm telling this story like it's a funny story, like I've told it so many times. And, and they, like, look at me, like, horrified. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, I guess that's not a particularly funny story. Um, and that it's kind of tragic and scary, <laughs> but you get you get normalized into into what your own stories are from where you come from. It's it's calibrated differently. Okay, well, so to, now just to, I'm staying with your childhood, but I do want to ask you about this because I was reading your self interview on the Nervous Breakdown. We featured you um, back when you know when Volt was first coming out. And, oh yeah, that uh, was in, fun. In your self interview, uh, you mentioned that you were almost uh, cast as Danny in the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining. Is it, this is true. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a letter from the... And I remember, I vaguely remember, you know, my mom had to take me downtown Chicago, and we took the train, I remember, and we went to this hotel, and I remember because they made... My mom had to wait in one room, and I had to go by myself with this kind of strange woman, and we went to this strange-smelling room, and there was a room filled with uh, uh, several people, and I, I sat there, and they asked me questions and stuff, and I was completely terrified. And uh, But I remember that whole process. I don't think Stanley Kubrick was in the room. I think it was all just casting people. Yeah, he didn't. I but, don't think he uh, ever I – don't, I don't even know if he left uh, England. or you know, Wasn't he afraid to fly or something? I feel, I feel like I remember right. reading that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so we, we spent uh, – you know, since then, later, you know, I was like – you know, my mom was the one who sent in the photograph of me that got me into the, the casting and got me in this series of events that got me down to be one of the finalists for the part. And I'm like, now, Mom, would, why did you think it was a good idea for your four-year-old son to try out for a part in The Shining? <laughs> and and so this is very telling of my family. She's she said, well, I read the book, and I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and so she thought that that would be fun and a unique opportunity. But uh, it wasn't like she didn't know what it was. She knew exactly what the part was and uh, thought it thought it would be a good idea. And now it's kind of like I think I got the best end of the deal because I got the story out of it, but I didn't have to spend a year cooped up with Jack Nicholson and uh, Stanley Kubrick. I think I would have been... <laughs> Um, maybe scarred beyond authordom if that would have happened. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. So, I mean, did you have a? Were you an act? You know, did you act as a child, or was this just kind of like a random thing? You know, I mean, you. you were... It was just a yeah. It was just a random thing. I did. Uh, I you know I did little plays and things like that, but it wasn't that uh, my mom had any uh, notion that I would be an actor or or anything like that. So, uh, but it was years later. Uh, I haven't talked about this forever, but I did uh, get to be an extra in the movie Hoffa. Chicago always has movies going on, so I did this thing where you go make minimum wage and you're an extra in movies. And so I did get to be in uh, a scene with Jack Nicholson eventually uh, as he was in Hoffa, but I was in the scene with like 200 other people. There's a big riot, and I'm in, a, in the riot somewhere. Can you see yourself? Uh, Have you seen the movie and actually <laughs> found yourself? No, I've told people I could see myself. I, I'll watch it with people, and I'll be like, okay, see that right there? That's me. That's me. <laughs> and they just, 
but no, I can't really see it now. But I'm some somewhere in there. Uh, but it was fun. You know, you get you go there and they, you know, they give you a haircut. It was kind of ridiculous because they give you this old uh, haircut, you know, and really close cut along the sides and back, high and tight cut. They put you in this period clothing. They have a uh, like a stunt choreographer work with you because it's hot, you know literally this is a couple of hundred extras, and you're paired up with uh, a couple people, and you got you with your little group just kind of work out how you're going to beat each other up, and uh, then they send you out uh, to this thing. But they do all of this work. This was like an all day process, and we filmed for like a half an hour, and then the final result is you can barely see any of us. You know, it's kind of like this just a big blur. It's like, why did they have you? They didn't even need to give us a haircut. I like even had a hat on a- anyway. So wait, but uh, and, they, and they just basically let the extras figure out how to choreograph their own fight scenes? Well, basically, I mean, it's such a large group. They can't go group by group by group. Like, you're going to throw an overhand right, and you're going to do an <laughs> right, uppercut. Right, right. But it, they kind of gave you the basics of how to choreograph, and they're like, you know, would walk around and make sure that, that you were doing what they were telling you. But, yeah, basically, you just had to work it out with your little your little crew of what you were going to fight. Well, uh, and to, to just continue with the movies, because uh, I also read in your self-interview that you watch as many as 200 movies in a year. And uh, you talk also about, you know, how much... Uh, you know, movies meant to you as a kid and how your parents would, you know, bring you along to go see films like All the President's Men when you were like five years old. And uh, I'm curious, you know, it, it seems like that would be uh, formative in terms of the fact that, you know, you went on to become a storyteller. I mean, movies are huge for you. Yeah, movies are huge. I think uh, my mom and dad are huge movie buffs, too. And uh, but, you know, that's was absolutely uh started by them. I mean, it's totally old school, but, you know, they would just, I was the youngest kid one, but whatever movie they were going to, they just took us all to the movie. And, and they weren't like, uh, you know, a lot of parents today where you, if a, a kid cannot possibly watch a movie that's a PG-13 or R, they will be scarred. Or well, maybe they, they are scarred. I may be proof to why. But <laughs> not bring... Uh, their children to think, but my parents just took me to everything. And one thing I can say, you know, I don't know what talents I have, but one thing is I've always, like, I can't remember, I struggle remembering my phone number. Like when I go someplace and they ask me, I have to really think about what my phone number is, but I can tell you, uh, you know, a movie I saw when I was eight years old and give you the bulk of the plot for some something about it that the stories are in me. So like my earliest film memory is seeing all the president's men, um, what with my mom and brother and another family, the Avalos is down the road. And we went to go see it at Orland square mall. I remember everything about it. And I remember the storyline and, uh, I don't know. It's just from the very start movies were just kind of magical thing for me. And they are, they are magical. That has never, uh, left me. But yeah, they took me to, I, I saw Apocalypse Now with my dad, and that was a terrifying experience. <laughs> How old were you uh, then? How old were you with, at Apocalypse Now? Well, when it came out, I had to be eight or nine years old, so, wow. uh, <laughs> so pretty pretty young. Uh, but, you know, my, my my parents were good. It's like, you know, if if something happened in a movie that was kind of, we didn't know what to do with it as kids, they would just talk to us about it. And it was kind of like 
that's the big key. He, so my dad talked to us about what what the Vietnam War was, what war is, what might have happened in there. And so, you know, like, I had questions at the end of Apocalypse Now. They have, like, this big ritual scene, and uh, Martin Sheen is, like, sneaking around about to assassinate Kurtz, and, and this tribal scene, like, they're they're literally hacking the head off this big ox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember that image haunting me more than anything. You know, it's kind of like all the dead bodies hanging in the trees didn't do much for me. But right, hacking the, right. the head off an ox really bothered me. So no, I remember my... I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And, like, I, you know, uh, I joke about this, but it's weird how you get desensitized to human violence. But, I mean, if you injure a dog in a movie... I am outraged, and I, I can't deal. Right. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you touch a single hair on a dog and, and harm that dog in any way, and, and I, I can't even look. You know, it's terrible. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think my reaction was like, well, those people in the trees—they're humans. They probably did something. But what did that ox do? <laughs> right. That ox right. is just hanging, you know, hanging around eating some grass and stuff. And next thing he knows, he's getting his head hacked off. And so, you know, but my dad told me that it was, you know, it, it was part of this ritual and tried to explain it to me and, and that kind of things. But but he, they were uh, uh, they were really great parents in that they, they did that for me uh, and my brother and sister, too. Um, but, I, man, I saw some great movies, too. Tender Mercies is one I remember when I was a kid, too, and I just absolutely lo- I still love that movie. Horton Foote wrote screenplay and uh, just a couple months ago, I bought the screenplay because I needed to read, you know, everything that he put in there. It's such a beautiful movie, but and it was different back then too. I remember also we would go to the Homewood Theater, and no matter what the movie was, they had an intermission, and that they served cake. They served like actual cake, like they made cake and gave you a piece of cake. So at the intermission of Apocalypse Now, you would go out and you'd have a piece of chocolate cake and some juice. And then you go back and you'd watch the rest of the movie. Uh, and so, I, you know, I have very fond memories. But that that hasn't left me. I'm still a huge cinephile. And my movie watching is down this year a little bit. But I still think I watched, well, I'll be right around like 150 movies this year. So wait, uh, and you're watching them on TV or are you just constantly go to the theater? Or like, how do you, how do, you do it? No, t- TV mostly, Netflix and, uh, you know, that kind of thing now. Um and uh, so I see a few in the theater, but you know you can't watch that many movies in the theater. Yeah, uh, you'll you'll be broke. Uh, and uh, so uh, most of them on uh, Netflix. So what, uh, what's what's some good one? I mean, you, I mean, I, I I know these kinds of questions tend to leave people blank, but do you have any movies that you saw this year that really stand out? Oh yeah, let me think. Let me think. Uh, 2011 films. Let me think. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, one one a couple. Popular ones. Well, I saw I saw Tree of Life, and I'm on the side that I really thought it was genius, and it, I found it very I found it very moving, um, and it was just kind of a profound experience for me, and I thought it was it was art, and as pretentious as other people have found uh, Malick, I've always been a fan of Malick's work. Yeah, me too. Uh, it really I worked. Love, I love Terrence Malick. Yeah, and so that that movie really worked on me, and. Um, in the same way, Melancholia worked on me too. The Lars Van Trier film, I thought was beautiful and strange, and um, just had everything that I'm personally looking for in a movie. Uh, there's a 
um, Taiwanese film called Poetry that uh, I went in thinking, there's a couple of movies that I went in thinking that this this is not going to work for me. I'm not that interested. I mean, it's a movie called Poetry. How exciting is that going to be? And uh, <laughs> But it's about a... It's about a woman who's losing her uh, memory, and she starts taking a poetry class. And at the same time, I won't spoil it, but there's this bigger drama that is unfolding in her life. And I just, you know, it was one of those, just at the end of it, by the time I got the end, I was just kind of bawling, sitting there by myself. Uh, it, it was such a beautiful uh, movie. Uh, and the trickiest one, there's one called uh, Of Gods and Men, which is uh, about uh, these priests... Um, who live in, oh gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. You know, where is it? It's uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Um, but uh, there's kind of uh, Muslim militants who are beginning to take over the area, and they're the, the priests are one that they need to leave. Uh, they're these monks, I should say, not priests. And so the movie was kind of, you know, I understood the story, I understand exactly what, and it wasn't really working on me. And then I won't spoil it, but we get to the very last scene and something snaps me into like, this is real. And I just had to sit there looking at the TV screen for like 20 minutes, trying to make sense of what I just watched uh, for two hours and thought that was a very powerful movie. Hmm. Um, well, so I know how, just for, go ahead. No, I was going to say, how does, like, I mean, cause like, you know, uh, storytelling is storytelling and I'm just curious uh, about how, uh, movie watching and fits into your writing life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you would you watch a movie after you're done with your writing work at the end of the day, or will you watch a movie in the morning before you start just to kind of get yourself going? Or all the above, yeah. I mean, so uh, usually everybody goes to bed in my house uh, about nine thirty ten. My son, who's fifteen, is usually off doing something in his room, so I have free reign of the TV after that. So every night, just about, I, I watch a movie. It's just my ritual. Um, but then I also kind of, you know, if I'm working on something with my fiction and I'm trying to figure out a particular type of scene or a particular type of moment, and I know that I've watched these films that have handled that kind of thing in a way that I remember as being successful, I'll absolutely pull those things out and I'll watch those as part of my process to get my head around uh, how to get it on the page. You know, it's, you know, some, some of the best literature has come from the world of cinema. Um, and so I just, I take full advantage of that. You know, part of the process too is looking at books in the same way and, and looking through uh, scenes and moments that were handled well. So I just, I take whatever I can get and try to use that for my process. And, um, but film is great just because you can uh, consume more of them <laughs> quicker. So it's like, you know, uh, I read a lot too, but there's no way I can read, you know, 200 books a year. Yeah. Um, but I can consume that many stories uh, in film uh, over the course of the year. And I actually like it too. So well, sure. uh, Win-win. Well, tell me a little bit about Boise, like living up in Idaho. Uh, you teach up there at the, at the University of Idaho. Is that correct? No, Boise State oh, University. Boise State. That's right. I'm sorry. And uh, That's okay. And so what's, what's the whole scene like up there? It sounds like it's pretty nice. Uh, it's nice. Uh, Boise is uh, a, a great city. Uh, it's uh, the most isolated uh, city of its size in the United States city of a certain size. 
take over a population of like 150,000. It's the most isolated city. So like the big thing for me living in Idaho from coming from the Midwest is getting used to kind of the vastness of the West. It's like uh, our, our nearest other city is Salt Lake City, which is like six hours away. Mm. And in the Midwest, like if I was in Chicago and we're like, we're taking a six-hour car ride, I would be like, we're driving to the end of the earth. And so <laughs> now six hours is like our closest. We, my wife is from outside of Portland, Oregon, which is to get to her town. McMinnville is about nine and a half hour drive. Now, I don't know if I ever drove nine and a half hours ever when I lived in the Midwest. And it's like, why are we not flying if we're going to drive that far? But now we do that trip, you know, regularly. Um, and so getting used to the vastness of things. But because we're so isolated in Boise, it's kind of like there's this whole kind of we must be self-sufficient. We must must create our own cultural scenes. And it's a very good thing. Um uh, so over the course of 11 years of being here, I've seen uh, tremendous change in uh, the art scene here in Boise, and the writing scene is doing great. Uh, we how, have so, how so? Well, we just have a lot of people doing a lot of great work, and everybody, there's, there's no kind of uh, uh, insecurity, resentment, that kind of nonsense. I remember right before I moved from Chicago, you know, I, I kind of bounced around a little bit of the, the Chicago writing scene a little bit, and it was just kind of weird, and it was not a great community to be a part of because it's uh, it's like people almost resented if you had any success at all. Um, I remember I was having a conversation with uh an individual who was kind of the leader of this kind of community of writers. And we'd had a few drinks and I remember saying, man, I just, I want to write something great. I just want to really write something that I'm proud of and I'm great. And I want to take my time and do it right. And I remember the, this person turned to me and said, well, first of all, you have to stop being so fucking arrogant. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, no, wait, no. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not saying I am great. I want to be great, but it's like, you know, how dare you even suggest you want to have standards or do something of quality or something like that? I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I would be called out for that. And, and Boise, it's the complete opposite. Everybody is, like, rooting for you, and everyone knows each other. And it's a smaller community, um, but, you know, everybody is just happy when everybody else succeeds in a, in a genuine way. It's a... Uh, I think it's part of the place, but I think it's part of the individuals too. You can have a certain, you know, if we had different individuals here, maybe it would be different. Well, how did you how but, did you wind up there? How did you wind up in Boise after being in Chicago all those years? Well, they were starting up an MFA program out here in uh, 1999, and I had uh, a good friend of mine's a writer, uh, Tony Dor, Anthony Dor. He and I went to graduate school together at Bowling Green. And he and his wife, his wife was from here, so they had just moved out here. And I was kind of just done with Chicago. You know, I grew up there. I'd been there most of my life. I wasn't particularly happy at that time in my life. And uh, I wanted to change the pace. And so Tony said, hey, it's kind of fun out here. There's cool things happening, and they're starting an MFA program. You should, you should come on out. 
And uh, so I uh, so I did. So uh, I came out here to be a part of the graduate program, and uh, uh, I've been here ever since. And uh, like I said, even in the 11 years since I've been here, just the landscape has changed uh, quite a bit, not just in Boise, but in Idaho. Uh, there's just a, lo- a lot of people doing really fine work, and everyone knows each other, and everyone's kind of rooting for each other. Mm. So it feels nice. Well, okay, so here's a shifting gears just a little bit. Uh, another sure. another uh, tidbit from your self-interview that struck me uh, is that you met your wife at, at a zoo while watching a Komodo dragon be fed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. That's, uh, uh, that is the stuff of, of romance uh, novels right there. I mean, <laughs> my, my wife and I are perfectly matched for each other, and that's kind of a perfect way for, for us to meet. Um, but my wife, one, my wife loves my book, I mean, so she likes intense, weird stuff. We're not, well, she's a fifth-grade teacher, so I think if you meet us, you'd be surprised at what my book would be and uh, that she would like my book. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, at the zoo, and uh, I had made a deal for myself. I'm, I've always been pretty shy around women, and uh, I made a deal with myself this summer that if I saw a pretty woman, that I would it had to at least go up and say hello, and and try to make conversation, not even get phone numbers or anything like that, but just to say hello. That's kind of how shy I was. Yeah, I was kind so of the I same thought, way. I was kind of the same way. I'm feeling nervous just hearing this story, like just about that. I know. <laughs> I'm I'm very glad to be married, and towards the top of my list is like I never have to ask a woman out on right. a date again. <laughs> right. It was terrible. Uh, there was probably no greater fear for me uh, than, than that. But, uh, yeah, so it was a, a summer day, August, and I saw her uh, up front uh, watching the feeding time of the Komodo dragon. And uh, I, I went and stood beside her, and uh, I can't remember what I said, but I tried to say something clever about a Komodo dragon eating a rat uh, or a mouse, whatever they're feeding. I think it was actually a rat. And... Uh, um, and she actually laughed at it and looked at me, and then we realized we had met one other time, and uh, we were off to the races the after rest, that. The rest is history. Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if like, you you make the funny comment about the Komodo dragon eating a rat, and the woman looks you right in the eye and laughs, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's love. That's a, yeah, good, that's a good sign. Yeah, it's a good sign. But we laugh uh, all the time. It's like... Uh, uh, last Valentine's Day, you know, I'm like, you choose the movie and I'll choose the meal. And uh, so we went to see the the movie version of Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, <laughs> and then we had sushi. So that was our Valentine's Day is The Road, and then we had sushi. <laughs> uh, and we're fine with that. I think one, one cool thing about us, we're like, okay, everybody else thinks we're a little bit strange, but... Uh, but that's love. That's why we're married to each other. No, and it's, uh, it's funny to hear you say that because, like, uh, you know, my wife and I have, like, it's almost, like, freakish how we have exactly the same taste in movies. Like, we will, you know, there's plenty of things that we don't uh, always agree on or whatever, but when we go see a movie and we walk out of the theater, uh, like, I, I've ne- I can't remember a time where we didn't have the exact same opinion of it. Like, we, we see movies exactly the same way, which I've always found sort of interesting. No, I, absolutely. Uh, we have kind of uh, 
uh, a very comparable aesthetic, art aesthetic, and worldview uh, as well. And, you know, that just makes things uh, easier. I remember, you know, they always have that saying opposites attract and stuff. Man, I tried that my whole life for the opposites attract sort of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it just didn't work for me. It's like opposites just kind of got into arguments about movies. Um, and uh, so, yeah, my wife and I, it makes us easier. So we have the same taste for books, too, and uh, movies, which is nice because we can, you know, Rep- I reptiles. can buy all, buy all the books that I want, and she doesn't get mad at me because she actually reads them, too. Um, it also makes her good. She's a good reader for my, she's my first reader for my fiction, too, and I kind of trust her because she's kind of has, uh, the, she is the audience that I'm looking for. Uh, someone who's not me, but that kind of has similar preoccupations, and uh, so she's always a good, good sounding board for, uh, for my work. Okay. Well, one last question before I let you go: uh, ghost hunting. Uh, is this something that you've been doing, or have you done? I, I, I've read something about you uh, possibly going ghost hunting. Yeah, I'm working up towards it. I'm, I'm so it's, um, I, ha- I'm have an opportunity that I might be able to go on a ghost hunt and uh what does that entail like that's just like you have like some sort of uh technology do you have some sort of apparatus that you're using to track the ghosts or <laughs> yeah they there are so there are these guys uh and gals who are they that's what they do this is whatever their hobby their profession and they go to places and they have all these gadgets that uh, measure different things that to them is suggestive that there are is paranormal activity in in a place, and so i'm i'm I don't know what I think about this whole ghost thing. I know that I love ghost ghost stories and I love spooky things, and that I grew up hearing ghost stories I love telling ghost stories. Uh, I can say that I've been in places where strange things have happened that I'm not sure what it was. But then there's this bigger leap of faith where you're like, that strange thing that happened, that is the spirit of a deceased individual that is still here with us. And so I I don't, I can't, for me, it's like confronting both uh, my fears of the possibility of that, uh, which I'm still trying to get my head around how to work out that fear. Um, and, uh, also just, you know, trying to make sense of that question, which is a, a big unanswerable, uh, it's like, you know, I was talking to uh, this one kind of ghost hunter guy. And so we're talking about this one place over in Oregon. That's like an old defunct asylum that's supposed to be very haunted and, so I was talking to him, and he says, oh, yeah, that place has demons in it. And I started to laugh. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, demons. He's like, no, seriously, dude, it's got demons in it. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? Right. Like, I mean, it's, it's hard enough for me to like, okay, well, there's the spirit of a deceased individual. But now add to it, like there are these things called, and they're real, these things called demons. And so I like came home and told my wife, I'm like, yeah, and then the guy said, there's demons there. She's like, you're not going there. <laughs> and I'm like, well, 
like, I don't know if there really are demons there. I mean, this, this, they believe there's demons there. And she's like, if there are demons there, you're the exact type of person the demon will go inside. <laughs> that you will, you will come home possessed. We don't want you here possessed. You're you are, bad enough not possessed. You're a prime, and prime candidate to be a vessel for a demon. I would because I would be in there looking. I wonder if there's a demon here. It's like the guy who's wondering, huh, I'm really looking for a demon. That demon's like, that's my guy right there. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm I'm trying to to get my head around. I so I had this opportunity and I had to get back with people and, and uh, so the idea is that I would go on uh, this ghost hunt. I'm very interested in belief, what people believe, and how they believe it. So I'm very interested in these ghost hunters too, because they believe in full in what they're doing. Not only uh, that these things exist, but that the science that they're employing uh, is going to somehow um, scientifically prove, empirically prove the existence of these paranormal entities. So I'm very interested in what people believe and why they believe it. And so um, uh, I have to find room in my schedule and get back with these people. But that's the idea is that I would go and then write an article about my experiences. And uh, the reality of it is messing with me a little bit. I like the idea. I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun. But then the the, the literal, like, Okay, I'm going to go to a defunct asylum that is haunted by people and has demons in it. Like, <laughs> what do I think about well, that? Well, I, you know, it sounds like something you would write about, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a journalistic uh, thing or it's, uh, you know, maybe it finds its way into your fiction later on. But I, I would read that. I got to say. Well, I know that at this point it's something that I have to do, uh, just because it's. Uh, you know, I kind of, I know that if I'm writing something and it's kind of working on me, like it's bugging me, uh, it's making me feel something intensely, that is probably something I need to write about. And this is absolutely working on me. So I've been, I've been watching Ghost Hunters, the TV show, trying to, uh, you know, get my head around what, it, what exactly they do and trying to figure out how I feel about it before I actually get out there in the field uh, and I'm not figuring anything out, but it, it's it's really uh, making me feel nervous. And I know I have to confront this thing and uh, get out there and try to make sense of why this thing in me is uh, flaring up the way it is. And you know, there's only one way to figure that out: get out there in that asylum and and uh, see what happens. All right. Well, uh, be careful. It's been uh, you know exercise caution and. Uh, it's been great to talk with you, you know, and congratulations on all your success with uh, with Volt, and it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what you come up with next. Thanks, Brad. I had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That's the program. That's the show. That's Alan Heathcock for the hour. Go get his story collection. It's called Volt. It's available right now from Gray Wolf Press. Uh, if you want to check him out online, he's at alanheathcock.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at alanheathcock. He's on Goodreads. He's on the Facebook. He's everywhere uh, online. So this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, if you like the show, if you enjoyed the experience, if you feel nourished by the exchange, please take two minutes Take 120 seconds out of your life and go over to iTunes and give the show a good rating and a nice review that really does help the cause. Uh, and I would be much obliged. Two minutes, that's all it takes to lend a hand. So uh, otherwise, uh, I don't have much more. 
I tried, I think, at the top of the show to describe an awkward social interaction that I had at the gym. Uh, Just that feeling of being caught and then being misunderstood, but having no method of recourse to fix the problem or correct the misunderstanding. Uh, You know what I'm saying? So uh, I I couldn't really go up to the girl and be uh, apologetic. I couldn't say, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to creep you out uh, when we made eye contact. I know that you were eating a banana and it looked kind of perverted uh, for me to be looking at you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's nothing you can say. I can't tell her that the truth is that I'm just curious about her, you know, her compulsive over-exercising, and I happen to look up and see her in the mirror uh, just as she was taking a giant bite. That doesn't work. There's no way to talk about this, uh, and therefore there's no correction that can be made. Uh, what's done is done, and and that's why I think I called it a tragedy uh, on the top uh, top half of the show or the top uh, beginning of the show. It's one of those like minor infinitesimal infinitesimal tragedies that play out on a daily basis uh, all over the world i think they happen by the millions and uh it's part of human it's part of the human experience and i think it's part of why we sing that's why we sing spirituals uh or at least part of the reason it's why i sing even though i don't sing very much uh these moments they have no name you know what i'm saying two strangers exercising in a strange gym looking in the mirror trying to ward off death One of the strangers is eating a giant banana, and the other one cannot maintain a neutral facial expression. What do you call that? Uh, I'm not sure what you call that, but I do know that it contains multitudes. And uh, as a result, this program contains multitudes, and you, the listeners, contain multitudes too. Thank you for listening. Uh, Go take a walk. Get some fresh air. Quit staring at your screen. Quit hunching over. Sit up straight. Get some exercise. And whatever you do, Please do not eat bananas in public. Thank you.